Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. How much does the fear of litigation influence your practice? Today we look at a recent ruling in English courts where a GP was sued for wrongful conception and ask what the implications are of this case for day-to-day practice. We also get some tips on managing childhood constipation, as well as make some New Year's resolutions and predictions. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and a clinical editor of the BMJ. I'm joined today by Navjoy. Hi. Hi, Tom. Um, My name's Navjoy Lada. I am a locum GP in London and a clinical editor at the BMJ. And we're not joined by Jenny for the first time in nearly two years. I know. I know. It's just the two of us. I know. She's actually having on holiday in New Zealand. So, well, happy happy holidays, Jenny. But yeah, we're going to struggle on without her today uh just just you and I um but how are, how are you how's your Christmas and New Year Happy New Year and all that even though it's it feels yeah, quite happy late New Year. um my Christmas was good it's my birthday on Christmas day oh, so course. it's always a bit of a, a busy busy day but yeah it was fine it was nice to get a break from um things and uh just fret about Omicron <laughs> um and worry about you know uh, what was what was happening but yeah. Yeah, um, it feels like a long time ago though now. Yeah, it was such a um, surreal time, wasn't it? With the announcements every other day and, you know, and GPs tomorrow are going to start vaccinating the whole country. It was, uh, I know, I know. And suddenly we like GPs again and we're grateful yeah. for everything GPs are doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the usual. And how are you feeling about 2022? Um, I feel... Uh, <laughs> I want. I feel like I should say something positive. Yeah, yeah go on. I'm. I'm not sure. I'm feeling that positive. Oh. I feel a bit fed up, to be honest, of mm. of how things are at the moment, and so it's hard to be. Um, you know, I'm. I I I really want and hope that things get better. Um, you know, in terms of uh, the pandemic, in terms mm. of the working lives of of GPs, and in terms of you know. Um, being able to focus on the issues that matter to our patients as well. Mm. I, I just, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it feels, yeah, maybe we'll find a, a magic money tree or a magic GP tree, the the mythical ones that have been talked about for the past few years. Hopefully we'll find those this year. There, that's as, it's a, as good oh as gosh. optimistic as I can be. <laughs> what about you? Um, yeah, I suppose for, for, for the GP world, I do feel like once this current crisis, you know, the, the COVID crisis has passed, I, I just feel like we're going to be back to where we were in the autumn and um, all those problems which we sort of, well, the public at least have perhaps less focused on at the moment uh, in terms of GP access and appointments and, you know, all the face-to-face arguments and discussion, um, yeah. which essentially I think comes down to capacity. As one of our listeners once uh, sort of wrote in and, and talked about they're still there aren't they I'm not sure yeah you know and more people probably leaving or doing less fewer hours um lots of people going to the online um, private GP services yeah does worry me yeah I agree it's um that all those problems feel like they'll definitely still be there and perhaps even um you know after after a winter of working really hard Mm. perhaps you know people be feeling even more 
um, pressured. Yeah. But on an optimistic note, I did. I did. Um, I'm trying, we need to think, find something positive, don't we? Um, I did my hundredth ride on the Peloton last night. Oh, yay, Tom! <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, it, it took me over a year, but I uh, got there. Um, I got a shout out as well from the uh, instructor. You did a live ride. I did a live ride. Yes, my first. With who? Uh, ben. If you know, do you know Ben? Oh yeah, yeah. Ben's Ben solid, isn't he? He's, he's okay. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so that was exciting. Um, um, we should. That's yeah. That's a very positive start yeah. to the year, Tom. So I'm going to, I think that's a personal goal is to kind of get get more in control of my health and uh, uh, you know, and the, not just with with um, exercise bikes, but um, more generally to stop eating chocolate, for instance. Yeah, yeah, I definitely want to do more um, Peloton this year. I mean, I know it's stupid to have this bike that goes nowhere, but one thing I do really like about it, not just the you know opportunity to exercise at home but also the a lot of the um instructors are like life coaches therapists you know they've all got these little um nuggets of wisdom that yeah. they throw your way which i really love yeah i feel like we should say before we, we're not being sponsored by by this bike i feel no. slightly uncomfortable with the fact that we're talking about this so much but um you know when you're stuck indoors all the time that's, uh, but <laughs> other exercise bikes are exactly available. exactly um so no i agree and and actually one of the things I was thinking about or have think, thought about over the last year is that kind of imagine if we as GPs like use some of the, the language of of you know by not just Peloton but any kind of health coach or instructor or motivational you know there's people you hire to go and take you yeah. into the park and and, um, and get you fit um, how do you think that would go down I mean I feel quite cheesy coming out with some of this stuff, but I have to say, when I hear it, it I, I feel motivated by it. So yeah, maybe you're onto yeah. something. Should I, should I give you some examples? Not that I've oh, yes, prepared please. this or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm going to do it in my own voice rather than theirs, and you can imagine. Okay, that, yeah. Don't yeah, put on an American yeah. accent. Uh, you can be a mess, but you can't stay there. Do you think that would um, is a good okay. one? Uh, maybe the game should be: Can you? Would you say this in in a consultation? <laughs> I can't imagine telling a patient that'd be sort of acknowledging that they're a mess, which I can't, I can't quite no. imagine doing. But yeah, I mean, maybe that's maybe that's good to acknowledge someone's a mess and that they should, you know, they get to do that for a little bit, but then they've got to move on. Maybe, okay, maybe okay. the numbers do not define you. Oh yeah, that's a, that's good, a good one. one. That's that's a very good one. So yeah. calling up for results and you know why is my hematocrit you know a little bit low or high. You yeah, just... someone's worried about their weight. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I like that one. Um, let me get a better one. Um, pain is just weakness leaving your body. No. no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember hearing that when I um, I was looking up uh, mantras for running a marathon. Okay. And what there were there were many about pain, and and that was one of what pain is weakness leaving your body and I just thought if someone said that to me I would want to punch them exactly exactly um but did you die (laughs) 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 yeah you've got problems but did you die um again can't quite imagine using that in a consultation can you no no I I just think (laughs) I, I obviously you'd get you'd get complaints you'd get people would walk out they I, and i think you'd get sued do you think eventually or yeah yeah um, i think that's uh possibly a bit flippant but it's interesting I, but i think there's a serious point somewhere in here which is that we kind of 
welcome these things into our lives when we pay for them on a from an exercise instructor but i suppose mm. um in that more serious is it because it's a more serious thing it's a, it's about real life to so health rather than trying to get you fit i suppose that's the difference isn't it but um, yeah, and often we're trying to engage with people at an individual level. And I don't know, sometimes these things can feel a bit glib, can't they? And yeah. uh, and, and lacking in seriousness. I have to say one, one quote that I've learned from a Peloton instructor, which actually I think of, think about a lot, not just to speak to patients about, but also for my own, like just reframing my own work when I feel like, oh, it's all getting a bit on top of me is as an instructor who often says, you don't have to do this, you get to do this. And oh, yeah. that um, is super cheesy, but I, I do find that that kind of helps me feel a bit more positive about things sometimes. Yes, yes, I like that one too. Yeah, and yeah, but I won't go into more. I think that's enough quotes, isn't it? But um, This is quite niche, niche yeah, content. Yeah, let's move on. So. <laughs> if anyone's still listening. Um, so, well, I mean, there is a link with that, with, with what we're going to talk about in today's episode, which is... Um, is basically getting sued for, for the things that we, we do or don't do. Um, and yes, I think if you, if you want to experience that, perhaps try some of these quotes out on, <laughs> in your next consultations. Um, but um, yeah, did you, did you see that recent case there, then moving on to that, of, of the, the person who took their GP uh, to court for compensation uh, because of wrongful conception? I did, and I must say I found it, yeah, I had a number of reactions to it, which was shock and mm. kind of disbelief and also then anxiety about, is this, you know, is this something that can happen? Mm. What does that mean for what I'm doing in my practice? Mm. It was pretty, um, yeah, pretty shocking. So we're going to hear from the, the B&J's legal correspondent in, in a moment. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims, we're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Okay, I'm Claire Dyer. I'm the legal correspondent of the BMJ, former legal editor of The Guardian. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining. Exactly the person we wanted to talk to to, to find out about this case, um, which has been widely reported as, I suppose, being a GP being sued for somebody being born um, 
can you tell us maybe from the beginning or just an overview of what what really happened here? Um, yes, um, the, the GP was sued by Evie Toombs, who's a show jumper. She was born with a neural tube defect, and she claimed that this was a case of wrongful conception, not a case of wrongful birth. Her mother, who gave evidence in the case, told, well, told the court that she she went to see the GP for preconception counseling. And that was confirmed by his note, his very brief note, which said, preconception counseling, folate if desired, discussed. And the judge said that note was completely inadequate. This was 20 years ago, of course, and she decided after discussing with him, she says that he told her if she had, or she came out with the impression at any rate, that if she had a good diet, then folate supplementation was not necessary. And so she went ahead and conceived her child and she was born with the neural tube defect. And a year later, she discovered that, you know, that the, the guidance was that you should have folate supplementation before conception and in the first trimester. Now, the, it was the daughter, not the mother, that was suing, of course. And there's an act called the Civil, no, Congenital Disabilities Civil Liability Act of 1976. <laughs> And under that act, you cannot claim, if you are a disabled person, you cannot claim that you, you cannot make a wrongful life claim. In other words, say, I shouldn't have been born at all. Um, but there is another section in the act which, she, which the court held that she could take advantage of, which says that if a child has been disabled as a result of an occurrence before its birth, which affected either parent of the child in his or her ability to have a normal, healthy child, or an occurrence which affected the mother during her pregnancy, or affecting her or her child in the course of its birth, so that the child is born with disabilities which would not otherwise have been Present. Okay, so if it's before, before conception, then the yes. case can be, be heard. Yes. And is this the first time then that that's happened? In your it's, case? Yes, it's, it's, it's the first time, and that's why they had to have the preliminary hearing to see whether there was it was possible to bring a claim at all yep. before the case went ahead. And, and therefore, I suppose, general, trying to generalise this a bit out to GPs now and what, what we're doing these days... Does this mean yeah. that um, for any sort of preconception counselling, that's potentially the same principle may apply? Yes, it may. And but according to this, the comment on this case, preconception counselling is fairly unusual. Is it? Is it not? Do people often come in with preconception counselling? Uh, not to see me. No, I, I don't. No, think no. I can, think of many it's happened but uh, that's true 
So we thought we should take a, a quick pause here um, as these legal kind of descriptions can be a bit heavy going. Um, in this case, they had to have a, a pre-hearing because it was such an unusual case um, to determine whether there was it, whether there might, might be a case because it was a bit of a test case, this one. Um, and that was around this, um, what seems to me a bit like a loophole where you can't be sued if for a wrongful birth, um, but um, you can if for um, wrongful conception. Yeah, so it's the fact that this was preconception that made this a case. That's interesting. I didn't hadn't realised that. Yeah. Um, so so that's what, what what Claire was sort of detailing there, and obviously being correctly very accurate with with the the facts of of, of the law. Um, should we go on to the next part now, which is where we're talking about how this impacts or may impact us? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. I mean, I feel. I feel a bit reassured because, as you were saying, those um, preconception discussions don't seem to happen so much um, anymore. Like most of the time, mm. you're speaking to um, women, uh, you know, once they've once they've discovered they're pregnant, mm. and you know, there's advice that you give at that point. But I mean, those those conversations do happen, though sometimes, albeit rarely. So I would be interesting interested to hear what um, Claire has to say. I'm not, I, I don't think this is going to open floodgates, if that's what GPs are worried about. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> yes, it's quite a specific case. And, you know, it, it, it involved the court accepting, for instance, the GP's lawyers argued that she was pregnant already when she came in. It involved the court accepting that she stopped having sex with her husband before, you know, and, and then went ahead and also accepting that um, on the balance of probabilities, the child, if she had had the advice and taken the folic acid, then the child would not have been born with the neural tube defect. And because in the discussion since this verdict was, was made, that's been one of the things that pe- people have commented on, you know, sort of surprise that, you know, is that really a reasonable thing to accept? Um, well, um, she did have another child later who didn't have a neural tube defect. And I think on the balance of probabilities, one can argue, you know, it's only 50%, more than 50% likelihood is the balance of probabilities, which, which is the, what you do in a civil case, the proof in a civil mm. case. What about the, the part of this, which is about do- documentation, what you write and... Yes. Folate, if desired, discussed is, is quite ambiguous, yeah. isn't it? And you can imagine, it is. you can yes. argue that was a sort of shared decision making, is what we call it nowadays. You know, yes. you can take this if you want, and I've discussed the pros yeah. and cons. Yeah. Well, one of the big, one of the problems with these cases involving GPs and, you know, births is that, or even not births, is that often the claim comes years and years later, and the GP doesn't remember the consultation at all in most cases. And so, the GP has to say what his normal practice is. You know, and his, in his witness statement, he said his normal practice would have been to tell the patient that, you know, this is the guidance. Yeah. And I suppose in your, um, we were just saying before we started recording, 30 odd years of reporting legal, 
legal medical cases um, or more. Um, have you seen a shift there? I mean, because that would be really helpful from your more um, objective perspective. Like, do you feel like if if you were me as a GP, you'd be expecting perhaps in the UK to be more likely to be uh, sued or less? Or well, yes, probably because and uh, people have become more litigious for one thing, and the courts are putting more emphasis on you know what GPs need to do. For instance, informed consent has become much more important in the courts now. You need to, you know, tell the patient what, what's important to the patient, what the patient needs to know, and you have to look at what would be important to the patient. So you have to so that's, think more that's deeply Mon- about Mon- informed consent. Yeah. yeah. So that's the Montgomery, Montgomery yes. ruling and, yes. and what's yeah. followed that. So yeah. that's, that's really has had a big, a big effect yes. on things. Yeah. Um, and and there are people sort of calling. I think in one of those rapid responses to your um, article, to your article was um, about a sort of no no fault it myself, no. no fault compensation. That's it. What's yes. that? What would that look? Oh, like? that goes back. I think the reason I initially uh, Richard Richard Smith, former editor, asked me to, you know, write for the BMJ was I had written an article in the Sunday Times magazine about no-fault compensation, calling for a no-fault compensation scheme. And that back in the 70s, there was a sort of royal commission or some sort of commission about this um, uh, on whether it was a big issue back then. They, mm. they start, had started it in New Zealand. And, and from time to time, it's, it's arisen as an issue. But okay. I, I'm, I'm the, I myself now no longer think it's good. It would be good in this country, in your country, right. I should say, because I'm in Canada at the moment. <laughs> I think it, it would just be too complicated. It would mean smaller damages for people because more people would be compensated. It would, you know, because you would be compensated if you were born, say, with disabilities, regardless of whether there's any fault. No, no fault would not have to be um. into. Yeah. So that's the difference. You don't. You wouldn't have to prove negligence. No, that's why. No fault. No, you wouldn't. No. Sorry, Sorry, that's the level of uh, the basicness I was struggling with. Okay. (laughs) So, so it would mean that much, many more people would be able to claim. Yes. There would be some sort of cap on. There would have to be. There would have to be a limit. Yeah. And so people would not necessarily get what they need for compensation. But I mean, that is not to argue that you know, you shouldn't reform the law on compensation and the government is actually looking at that at the moment. So going back to the start of the second section then, um, it looks like this is quite a, a, a niche or relatively un, uncommon specific situation that we're probably not likely to to face the yeah. abuse. Oh, well, well I, sh- I shouldn't look at this too selfishly because but but I clearly <laughs> am um but we're, we're trying to think how this will affect uh, GPs in, in the UK aren't we yeah I mean what I found so interesting about that is just how um I suppose it's just an insight into how these legal cases work and how they might just differ from our like medical thinking mm. on something so Claire's saying that you know the burden of probability is 50 percent uh, likelihood that I guess that this could have been related to the um, mm. to the advice about fol- or lack thereof about folic acid, um, you know, f- with 
from my GP perspective, albeit I'm not a specialist in neural tube defects or um, conception and all of that, but I, I just don't like. To what extent can you can you know that? Mm. Um, it just I find that remarkable that all those circumstances mm. would line up, and that's you you can end up at a figure that is either more or less than fifty percent. So I think that's something maybe that we see often when we're looking at kind of medical medico legal cases mm. where just the, the discussion and the way things are discussed seem just quite removed from the way we might look at them as practitioners and the sort of reality of um how cases arise how how things happen in practice and how certain we can be that certain things are attributable to something else it's just kind of blows my mind a bit yeah yeah um it the rem- completely random tangent here but um it reminds me a bit of the the uncertainty around lab test results, which I always come back to. Do you remember that that um, paper in the BMJ a couple of years ago about this? Uh, and in that, we were discussing with the authors. You know, how certain does are you are you looking to be as a clinician about you know whether you know a, a fall in HbA1c from eight percent to seven percent is is true is a true fall? Like, is it seventy percent mm-hmm. sure, fifty percent sure, ninety nine percent sure? Yeah. And like you say, we don't really think in that way, do we? And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of applying a a false sense of precision mm. to these things. I think, mm. which does, doesn't. I mean, my sense is it doesn't exist in practice. We're often, you know, um, we're sort of moving in a direction or, or trusting in a direction rather than a you know a specific figure. Mm. Um, so that I found a really interesting insight into the the sort of civil claims process. I guess. Yeah. Um, which uh, I guess shed some light on how, because my, my whole sort of thinking on this case was how on earth, you know, did did this GP's defence legal team kind of get, you know, sure, surely there isn't an argument that could be made that um, would find in favour of the claimant. But uh, just uh, moving on to the documentation, it, it, it sort of reminds me it's of, of that feeling, it's like a bewildering feeling, like, when you look back at a patient's notes that, and you can't remember anything about it and yet you've got this yeah. complaint usually it's a complaint isn't it coming in or, or or worse and you read the notes and it's like oh gosh it, it's a horrible yeah. horrible sickening feeling I think yeah I mean no, notes are something that I just feel like deep anxiety about about at the best of times and this things like this don't help um, and then I mean, one thing that I um, I know that that there is this con- po- sort of I don't know like popular idea that when we make notes, if we have shorthand for anything, so you know, like this GP would have said, um, what was it? Folic acid discussed. Um, folate if, if desired discussed. Folate if desired discussed. And you can totally see how that kind of shorthand. You know, we all develop shorthand, yeah. like you know red flags discussed or supportive, you know, for supportive management, um, you know, discussed, whatever. And um, and I've always understood that as long as you, you know, if you did have a complaint mm. or if you did ever need to explain, as long as you could say what your usual practice was mm. and what you meant when you said mm. that, that was okay. Um, but now this has got me wondering, mm. you know, maybe not, like maybe you do need to spell out mm. like, folic acid for three months before and 12 weeks after you know um really spell everything out but of course you know we're so we just don't have Mm. the time as it is and so stuff like that I mean maybe yeah 
maybe the answer is um you know we maybe we need to automate you know you make more use of templates i know a lot of people do that already but we can't template everything and you yeah. also can't remember to document every facet of every yeah. conversation so yeah, it reminds me of the the nice guideline um phrases they you know consider versus yeah um, <laughs> what was it uh, advise or you know like like yeah they they all have their own meaning yeah, and, maybe and we need to develop our own um my other thought, I keep coming back to this thought, is why don't we just record, like video record or audio record every consultation and just kind of, then we can go back to more shorthand notes and we've got it, yeah. we've got the hard copy there if needed. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we just have, <laughs> a disclaimer, your your consultation may be recorded yeah. <laughs> um, for trading purposes. No, not for trading purposes, for, for, for medical legal purposes. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Well, I might go and find some an angel investor to <laughs> help help me make that a reality. How about that? Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, what else do we want? But I guess in this remote, sorry, yeah. just to pick up on the game, that is what um, people like. You know, that that's a lot of what a lot of these um, private providers who provide remote consulting services mm, by video that, that, that they do that. Yeah. And as a patient, you can look back on that as well mm. if you forget an aspect of it. So, you know, even if not set, setting the medico legal aspect aside, but from a patient mm. perspective, you know, you can go back and review what was discussed if you forget. So there might be other advantages. Who knows where we'll find the data storage, but um, yes, yeah. a few more Maybe servers. That, that would be a positive <laughs> step. Um, Right. And the next bit I thought was interesting was, well, I guess it's always worth mentioning the Montgomery ruling and that actually the much bigger thing is that rather than this case where yeah. it's, um, it was judged, wasn't it, that you, as a doctor, you need to give the information that's important to the patient to help them to make a decision. Is that roughly right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're discussing an intervention, you we should be discussing kind of all facets of that intervention, the, the benefits, the potential harms um, and risks related to but, that. But the bit which I find really interesting is that that would, the amount would depend on the patient and their, their kind of um, preferences and... Yeah, that bit's always felt a bit nebulous yeah. to me. Is like, how do you, you know, ha the definition of what is... A patient important to a patient is um, presumably going to vary um, yeah. quite su substantially, um, but yeah, that's definitely something that's had a massive Im impact on not just GPs but practitioners everywhere. Particularly, I mean, I know friends who work in obs and gynae um, and surgery where that that you know seems to mm. have tangibly mm. made a difference mm. to the way they conduct their uh, informed consent. Yeah, and uh, finally, no fault compensation. Had you had you heard of this idea before? Because I, I hadn't before researching this. I'd only heard of it um, from working at the BMJ actually, from um, where pre where people had mentioned the New Zealand system before. And I have to say, I was quite taken with it. So uh, it's interesting to hear Claire say that she's kind of moved away from this idea, <laughs> because my understanding is that in New Zealand, they um, it's not only about financial compensation it is about the other sort of um, mechanisms of redress that patients might be interested in where um, 
assigning blame kind of gets in the way of. So it's things like understanding what happened, mm. um, getting an apology, um, it's changes to the system that mean that that won't happen again. They can all become more of a prominent focus because you're not so het up on yeah. pointing the finger at someone. So that to me always seemed like a positive thing that you know you you have you just remove that that part of it altogether and you can get on with making the system better overall and also you know giving patients what what they might need if something has gone wrong or relatives and often that is just an explanation and an Mm. apology Mm. so that seems to happen um without necessarily every negative outcome being leading to a a compensation but i presume there's a way of um setting a threshold for, for that yeah, I think they have um, like review boards. Yeah. I, I don't know what the technical <laughs> terms are, but I think they have panels yeah. that, that look at cases. And um, yeah. yeah, to be honest, I, I don't know how it works. If only, if only um, we, we knew someone in New Zealand who, who could. <laughs> Typically the week that yeah. we are discussing New Zealand would be the week that Jenny's yeah. not here. Oh, well, we'll have to ask Jenny about that next time. Yeah. Okay, well, let's let's move on now to uh, a bit of a, ch- a change in in tone, perhaps, or a change to something a bit more clinical. Um, if you remember, in the last episode at Christmas, we had a nice part about childhood constipation in our Christmas quiz. Have you, you still? Have you got over that yet? I did. I did get over that, and I did manage to have some gravy. <laughs> Uh, with with my Christmas lunch, which uh, you hadn't completely traumatised me with your comparison to type type seven I think it was or type, type six, uh, yeah, yes. Gosh, like oh no, I've gotten over it to the point where I can't even remember what type. <laughs> it of, depends how much how much was. bisto you you know the granules you put. You, <laughs> it's type six or seven. I was getting over it until <laughs> until now. Um, so you're you're bringing poo back. We're bringing poo back. For, it's it's. It could be a regular feature if, if people want it to be, but um, I thought it would be it would be good to talk to the authors from the article we published in the BMJ recently about childhood constipation and to look at some of those really practical issues that, that can be the difference between well-managed and not so well-managed constipation. Um, things like uh, how to get a child to take the Movacol um, and, other, and other bits of clinical nuggets, not to go back to type, what nuggets, type five? Or? <laughs> type four or five but no that sounds that sounds really useful and uh better, better than these um food ruining comparisons that you get yeah, no take. more no more food comparisons um hello i'm olivia bradshaw i'm currently an sd1 working in calderdale and uh, and the lead author on the recent constipation in children <laughs> paper in the bmj <laughs> and uh hi and jonathan hi hi i'm um i'm jonathan darling i'm clinical associate professor in pediatrics and child health and medical education in the U- university of leeds and also uh, an honorary general pediatrician in the children's hospital great and and of course worked with olivia on on this article um which which i mentioned a moment ago so one thing i struggle with is like how do you know when it really is um, impaction versus just straightforward constipation, because then you're lo- looking at a very higher, much higher dose of of treatment. Um, any any tips on that? I'll start with you, Olivia. Um, so from from the research that I was looking at, really, you want to consider it if they've not opened their bowels for more of a significant amount of time. So the guidelines say sort of seven days or more, which is obviously a really long time for a child mm. to not 
bowels. Um, and I think the key thing is that it may or may not have had stool palpable on examination. It doesn't always necessarily, you know, depending on body habitus and things like that, mm. you, you can't just go off um, palpation alone. Um, so I think the main thing really is sort of length of length that a child hasn't really opened their bowels for and, and sort of the yeah. significance of that. Yeah. And, and what about uh, the level of distress that the child is, you know, if, if they're, you know, screaming the house down and can't pass something, are they basically impacted and, and you yeah. should just, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I think that's really important is the, um, the impact it's having on the child. Um, mm. So that definitely are sort of timings because you need to take that into consideration as well as to yeah. how it's affecting them. Uh, Jonathan, anything to add there? Yeah, so there's some, sometimes you read that um, you also check for uh, faecal impaction, as in a, a faecal mass, um, and you might feel that through the abdomen, as Olivia says. Um, but we, do, we don't advise people doing digital rectal examination in children. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's really the reserve of specialists uh, in, in hospital. So um, it's really on, on, on history and um, abdominal examination. And a history of soiling is also quite relevant. You know, if they're passing a lot of overflowed stool, mm. um, that might point to impaction too. Right, let's move on to treatment because a lot of this, I think, from personal experience, well, it's about the treatment, but also, I suppose, about the explanation and the you know, conveying or to the parents what the plan is and them understanding that. Uh, but let's start with just the simple, simple stuff on Movicol and Macrogol treatments. Olivia, uh, where would you start? Just give us a kind of, you know, dummy's guide, perhaps, to, to that. Um, so if obviously that's indicated, then I'd um, start by sort of explaining why we use them and what they do for, for the bowel. So obviously with Macrogol um, being osmotic laxative, talking about how that pulls water into the bowel and then helps form a softer stool and and allows the child to sort of pass a softer stool. Um, I think before you even talk about laxatives, it's good to just go through the um, explaining constipation for, for the parent and the child. So talking about how the stool is hard um, and it becomes larger and then it causes obviously um, intestinal sort of distension and discomfort and it causes the bowel to effectively um, not have very good peristalsis. Um, and sort of explaining that first I think is useful because then we'll explain what the laxatives do to then help move that on. So obviously we talk about macrogols being asthmatic and causing softer stools. Um, and then if needed be, we can talk about other laxatives if they're needed later on, such okay. as stimulant laxatives. So actually bringing the, the water back into the stool helps sort of wake up the bowel a bit more. Is that yeah. Yeah, basically that what's happening? Helps make them softer and easier to pass. And then your bowel can take over as more of its role and, and do what it needs to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, again, dosing is, I guess it's all, it's in the BNF, it's in, it's in all the guidance, isn't it? Um, but I, I, it's still a bit of, um, a bit of me, which is a bit like, oh, maybe that sounds like quite a lot of, of uh, sachets to be giving your, your you know, one, one year old. Uh, t tell us more about that. And is there any, any reason why we shouldn't really just go with what the guidance says? Um, yeah, I think it is. It can be a lot if you're thinking about the disimpaction regime and, and how many, because obviously you start small and, and build up and that can be quite difficult for parents to say, oh, you, you think you might want me on eight sachets in the next four days. It's quite a lot to, to tell somebody. Um, but I think you just have to, because we're starting small, we're not going in with eight sachets all at once. Mm. It can help people, you know, 
be able to be compliant and actually take the medication um, and get used to it and find the way that works for them. Um, speaking to different parents about it, they told me how they like to break up throughout the day and do it like after an activity or before an activity to, to make it easier to manage for them and their child, really. Mm. Um, so I think it's just sort of reassurance that, you know, we do have these guidelines and, and we, we will use them and, um, and, and why we, we have these guidelines as well. Anything else on that? I think another key concept is titration mm. and, um, and and empowering the parents to do that so that they, you know, you don't just give a single dose and say, go in, that's it. Mm. You, you'd often give a range and say, this is the kind of range we're expecting you'll need. Um, maybe start at the lower end, particularly looking for a maintenance dose, and then gradually build up to be getting one soft stool a day. Um, so, but then if it's too watery, you can come down a bit. Mm. So you, you empower the parents to, to adjust mm. to get the right effect mm. because it is going to be different in every child. Yeah, yeah. I suppose I, I'm thinking of um, often that treatment sort of works and then they can run out run out or not quite sure how to, to go on after that. You know, you get, you do the however many sachets a day, the child's better, but then what, what next? I think the key message is don't stop too soon. And uh, just because it's got better doesn't mean it's gone. And I, I think a, a helpful concept can be that that if, if constipation has been happening for a while, the bowel will have become baggy. So rather than being a tube that's good at pushing things through, it's become a bag that just holds things. And the stool that's held just loses water, so it gets hard and, and painful. So the more you can hold water there and keep things moving, the better which is what you're doing with your, your laxatives uh, and often a sitting regime to encourage them to sit regularly and push mm. um, and then as time goes on the bowel will recover its uh, its propulsive sort of muscular function to push and the bagginess will go away but that takes time and as a rule of thumb the the longer uh, you, if you've been constipated for a certain period then treat uh, and continue treating for that long mm. so if it's been happening for six months keep going for six months and a bit longer just to be on the safe side. So there's no harm going a bit longer and doing it gradually than stopping too soon and the constipation comes back and you're back at square one. Mm. Okay, thank you. I like that baggy, baggy bowel. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure, some more sensitive parents might, might go home and feel, my, they, my doctor said my child's got a baggy bowel, but <laughs> <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> um, um, thank you, that's very helpful. Um, what about other things? So lactulose, is it really that much different to just give lactulose or, or, or is there a strong evidence or experience even that, that the, the macro goals are better or work, work better? Olivia, do you want to go for that one? Um, I think from sort of the evidence, it was preferred as the, as the macro goal preparations. However, you've got to take into account, obviously, um, the patients and some of them, um, particularly for maintenance, just might not tolerate macro goals and they might prefer lactulose because it is a, quite a bit sweeter and um, obviously it's quite a different preparation. So I think mm. we need to take that into account with our patients. And if that's what's working for them, then that's, and you know, and, and then that's what's working for them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some, you know, whatever laxative they'll take is good. Yeah. Um, but there is evidence that macro goals are better than lactulose. So we would usually start with a macro goal. Um, I, I suspect it's partly because you've got to give a macrogol with water. 
Mm. Whereas lactulose, you just give the syrup. Now, I don't have evidence for that, but mm. the, the whole point of this is, is holding water in the gut. And so um, by giving water with your macrogol, you you've got to mix it up with the, from the sachet, you're, you're sending water down the gut. I see, I see. And holding it there. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, actually, the, the last thing, uh, tell us about t- some tips for getting your child to, to take the, the stuff then. Because, you know, if you're, if you're even one or two sachets, it doesn't taste nice, does it? And the last thing most parents need is more battles with their children. So what, what do you say to parents about that? Um, so I normally say that there can be like different flavours, so they can either use a flavoured form or, or a tasteless form. Um, lots of children prefer the tasteless form because then you, once it's prepared, you can mix it with other things. And I think that's the key thing is that you need to prepare it first and have the recommended, obviously, water for that sachet. And then you can mix it with things such as um, um, a hot chocolate or a cordial um, if their child um prefers it in that way and I think it's more of working with the child and that's what we did a lot in clinic is um actually asking with the child what they preferred and, and how they want mm. to do it and sometimes children will then prepare the laxatives themselves because obviously it powers them to take their treatment as well um, um yeah so that's what we yeah. found oh well, well my two-year-old had this problem and uh even at that age he loved making it himself it was quite sweet watching him make his thing and, and just downing it in one because because of the control thing, I think, because we let him be, the, be in, in charge. And we'll link to the article we were just discussing there in the podcast text. Okay, so this is a good time to finish up the podcast. Uh, thanks again for joining me, Navjoy. I'll see you next time. Thanks very much, Tom. See you next time. And then we'll also be joined by Jenny when we're going to be discussing how the vaccine mandates in the UK might be affecting the primary care workforce and hearing from GPs who are going to lose staff from the measure. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all other major podcast apps. The last thing to do is to say thank you to our guests today. That's Claire Dyer, Olivia Bradshaw and Jonathan Darling. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.